0: Isaac Morehouse, welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Yes, sir. We are live or almost live. We're recording this and it will be posted as soon as we are done on this lovely Friday afternoon. How are you, TK? TK. Amen. I'm excellent. And if you take almost live and you kind of acronym the first
1: word, you got alive. So we are alive, almost live, and also fired up by what we love.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the uncanny, uncanny ability to cheeseify, cheeseify, <laughs> pasturify, <laughs> ramify. I don't know.
1: I can't. What y- it reminds me of the Kanye West song, "Cannot I Testify? I should make my thing, Can I Pastify? Can I <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: So we've got a lot of cool stuff to, to cover today. We started a master list where we can just write down thoughts and ideas that we might want to talk about at any point on these Friday episodes. So we've got the master list with plenty of uh, items on it. We also have uh, a couple Ask Isaac submissions. And then I tried something new just now. I posted to Facebook that we are recording an episode. Does anyone have any questions? And um, we've got a few on there already. So we'll check back in that in a few minutes and see if there's any more. And we'll maybe try to get to those. So, uh, Awesome. First, I got to ask you a question.
1: Go for it, man.
0: Praxis, uh, as we all know, we don't all know that. All four of my listeners don't know that. I can't take anything for granted. Praxis is an entrepreneurship. It's a I'm sorry, an apprenticeship for people who are kind of interested in entrepreneurship, an apprenticeship with entrepreneurs, learning by doing, and you get a job at the end of the program. But it starts with a boot camp. So there's this three-month boot camp before you begin the apprenticeship. TK. What is in, and if you're wondering people, yes, this is native advertising. We're doing a little promo spot for Praxis in here. Before we get started. <laughs> TK, what is in the three month boot camp? What does that cover? Give me a, a nutshell. What's in it? Why is it valuable? Why is that part of the program structure?
1: Absolutely, man. So we, we, I, I almost went into a Stephen A. Smith thing. Absolutely. No problem. I would love to do this. <laughs> but,
0: but, but. I can tell you I have personally been through the boot camp myself and it is not a joke.
1: <laughs> I've seen many boot camps all around the world and I have never <laughs> seen one like this.
0: All right. So the, the boot camp
1: starts off with, um, with a workshop in personal branding where we, we start people off thinking about why it's important for them to think of themselves as a brand, not just a brand, but certainly not any less than a brand, and why that's going to be the building block for, for their career and all of their future uh, professional pursuits. Uh, in addition to that, we, we uh, walk them through a course where they learn the basics of technology and digital skills. They, they learn how to build their own website, and they actually complete this by the end of the first part of their boot camp so that this website will be their personal branding space where they will document what they're learning what they're accomplishing how they're growing as they move throughout the program so that's the foundation workshop and personal branding basics of technology and digital skills build your website complete that by the first uh, first part in addition to that they they take a course on the importance of creating work and not merely work uh, waiting for work and learning how to approach their professional lives from that entrepreneurial artistic standpoint. Then we move into the second part of it where they learn a lot of the basics of of soft skills and professionalism. They learn everything from how to navigate office politics to the basics of self-management, time management, money management, all these different sorts of things. And this involves consuming content from blog posts, books, you know, articles and videos and lectures about these sorts of things. But in addition to that, they're doing learning exercises every day, um, you know, and, and, and having, you know, uh, discussion questions that they go over with their praxis advisor with whom they meet every week. And then for the latter part of the boot camp, as we move into the third month, what they will work on is is basically sort of like pre-training for their business partner experience. So th- there, there is a buffet of electives that they can take and each of these electives will focus on them Mastering some sort of skill that will be relevant to the kind of work They'll do with their business partner or that will be relevant to their interests So so there may be one on finance where they can learn the basics of financial statements how to read them how to analyze them and so forth There's one on logic and communication where they understand the basics of thinking critically But learning how to sell an idea learning how to communicate their idea There's one where they learn the basics of project management office administration skills, and things along those lines. So by the time they start the boot camp, they're mastering the basics of personal branding, thinking of themselves as a business. As they move through that boot camp, they're learning the basics of professionalism, soft skills training. And then as they conclude that boot camp, they're getting themselves ready for that first day they're going to have with their business partner. So they go into the apprenticeship, being ahead of the track, than, you know more ahead of the track than the typical employee, where it's not about... Being trained, it's like we've already been training and building up for this. So yeah. now let's dive in.
0: You know, that's one of the most interesting things that um, you know our business partners, so many entrepreneurs and business owners I talk with, when they have new young employees, it's not so much like work-specific stuff because you know you you expect you're going to train them on your particular software that you use or your particular processes and the specifics. And it's not even just a deficit of hard skills, you know, not knowing uh, coding or copywriting and those things. That that definitely is a real uh, pain as well. But it's just a complete lack of social awareness in the work environment. Understanding what it's what it's like to navigate that space, to create value, to know what other people are looking for and what they need, to understand when you should ask for uh, help, when you need to just figure stuff out on your own, that kind of judgments in the workplace, because these, these are people, young people have primarily been shielded from the world of commerce for their entire lives. I mean, often it's even illegal for them to work when they're really young or um, go work for free or different things like that. So there's not much exposure. They've been in schools and, and in classrooms with people their same age, you know, being told what to do. So just getting out of that mindset, it's almost like a de-schooling process in a way. Like, look, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're not, this boot camp itself, it's not even like here are hoops, jump through them. It's, you know, what do you want? How can you get more value and trying to just transform that mindset? So uh, check out discoverpraxis.com if you are interested or if you know anyone who's interested in, Going to, into an apprenticeship at a growing startup or small business, um, getting prepared to succeed there, having coaching throughout your time, and at the end, having an amazing job at one of these companies. No debt required, no classrooms, no wasted time. DiscoverPraxis.com. TK, I got a question. Did you just hear a beep come through? I not, did not hear it. Okay, because I couldn't tell. It's, it's on my computer, but, and it came through my headphones, but I want to make sure it didn't come through over there. I had like a notification. All right, so... I, I, I think Philip K. Dick had experiences like that, where he might hear <laughs> random beeps or see beams of light.
1: <laughs> so it, it could be, yeah. I'm
0: gonna te- that's what I'm going to go with. I'm, I'm having a Philip K. Dick experience. I'm, I'm being communicated with uh, via some sort of wave form, some sort of beep sound. So <laughs> right. um, The intelligent beep. Uh, Okay, that actually is a good place to start, that the stupidity of hearing myself say the intelligent beep (laughs) reminded me the other day you were showing me a passage from a book, and it was this incredibly powerful quote. I mean, I absolutely loved it. It was something about how uh, the disempowering nature of politics or basically that politics by its very nature, like if you ignore it, it goes away. Political power only exists when you give attention to it. Something to that effect it was a really pithy, really insightful quote. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. I want to share that. Where's that from? And you turn the book over and it said TMTS and, <laughs> uh, for, the, for the author. And I said, what what's that? And he said it stands for the, the mouse that squeaks. Um, how did you come across a book by an author named the mouse that squeaks?
1: (laughs) Oh man, this is great. So, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, there, there are a lot of great quotes from that book. So I I guess the way I come across this is, so I have this, (laughs) I have this approach to knowledge that I call the, the Osirian approach to knowledge. And it's based on you know, uh, one of the teachings of the the ancient Egyptian mystery schools, where you have the myth of the the god Osiris who was murdered by Set and Set was jealous of Osiris. That's why he murdered him. He chopped up his body into pieces and hid him everywhere. And then the wife of Osiris, Isis, she went searching about for the body of her husband in all of these different places. And once she put together the pieces of Osiris, she was able to resurrect him and make him come alive again. And and part of the message of that that myth is that in order to find Osiris, who was a a symbol for God or self-knowledge, in order to find him, she had to be willing to look anywhere and everywhere because Seth had chopped up his bodies and put his body and put the pieces all over. So she couldn't just look in the temple. she had to look in the garbage dump, she had to look in the burial grounds, she had to look everywhere because there was a piece of God or a piece of self-knowledge in every place. So I kind of adopt that approach to studying period. I, I think that in order to find cool ideas in order to learn interesting things, You can't just look in the places where you expect to find knowledge. You can't just look in familiar places. You got to be open sometimes to looking in weird places, unorthodox places, even, dare I say, heretical places, because there are interesting concepts and cool ideas everywhere. So I've been living that way for a very long time. And, you know, uh, one could say that my approach to picking out books is is uh, reckless and irresponsible. But I'm always looking for interesting, strange stuff. I read the bestsellers. I read the cheesy stuff. I read the Oprah stuff. And I read the outright crazy stuff that we shouldn't read because it's on some (laughs) list of the books you shouldn't read. So somewhere in that process, man, I came across it. I was just
0: disappointed that I, I just felt like I couldn't share the quote and just be like, you know quote by the mouse that squeaks I don't know maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm I'm too nervous about that I should I should not care so much I saw you shared something from that today so um, <laughs> hey, so we have our master list of all these topics but now we're getting all these cool questions you want to just jump in hey, wait well, questions yeah
1: but, but don't you want me to read something from the mouse that squeaks before we jump in? Yeah All right so this isn't the one that you heard this thought, is from I a chapter
0: that, I thought that was a given. <laughs> oh, now, now you're doing something that I haven't heard before, and now I'm really nervous that it will be like long and boring. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> All right. So, so this is called, uh, in pra- this is from the chapter in, in praise of apathy. And he says, uh, What does apathy mean in political usage? The dictionary does not help because it describes apathy as a want of filling. And this could hardly apply to those who do not turn up to the polling booth. Because there is a good program on television, because they clearly have fallen in love, just not with politics, or because they can see through the candidates. No, indeed, apathy to a politician means not getting excited about politics. But is there any more noble virtue? Mm. So the book is about what he calls celestial apathy. He says political apathy is, is, is a divinely inspired state, and it's one of the highest of virtues you can have, where you see through the illusion of all of these politicians and their political power. You just just stop being as intimidated or inspired by them as you used to be.
0: Um, I love it, I love it. Uh, All right. right,
1: man. Let's dive in.
0: Let's dive into some questions here. Um, Okay, first I have a couple that came through Ask Isaac on the website. Uh, And anytime you can submit at uh, isaacmorehouse.com, there's an Ask Isaac button. Um, We have two questions from Matt Hartle. Matt, how are you? I wish he could answer, but he can't. Uh, You can hear us, Matt, and you can answer audibly while you're listening to this uh, with your earbuds. So the first question, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on going from wantrepreneur to entrepreneur. I've read a number of articles like this one, and he links to an article from Tim Ferriss uh, about how to make a million dollar business over the weekend um, about generating profitable ideas and running small tests. What techniques have you used to test the waters and get a feel for the current market? Well, I'll take a stab at this first and uh, say that, I mean, I'll I'll give you some thoughts, but I am not any kind of serial entrepreneur. Uh, I haven't created tons of businesses or anything like that. Uh, I started one with my brother uh, many years ago, and uh, it was not a tech business at all. It was a service business. And it more or less failed. Uh, I mean, it did fail. We, I think we sold it for um, $50 and a phone charger. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, I've, I've launched Praxis. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, going from entrepreneur to entrepreneur, because there are a lot of entrepreneurs, Like, right? If you go to a lot of conferences and stuff on entrepreneurship. And, and that doesn't necessarily, I don't mean just people who want to be entrepreneurs. I mean, people who are perpetually talking about entrepreneurship and ideas and studying it all the time and getting hyped up, but never actually launching anything. And I think if you want to just be honest and be like, I just want to observe entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors and kind of be a part of that culture from the outside, I'm not interested in launching anything. That's okay. That, that's a fine position to be in if you're honest with yourself and you know what you want, but that weird tension where people sort of claim to want it and seem to want it, but don't actually ever act on anything. So the article um, that was linked from the Tim Ferriss uh, website was, was really great. It had some amazing ideas about, you know, how to think of something that could be profitable. And I, I've always loved James Altucher's concept of, you know, write down 10 new ideas every single day. Just make yourself write down ideas every day and you'll become an idea machine eventually. It will be really hard at first, but you'll get good at turning on the creativity. And most of them won't be very good. Many of them will be things you're not able to execute on. You can give them away to others. They may or may not use them, but you might come across some that are good. And I, and I, I do this. I mean, I have a folder of ideas that I'm always sort of adding to. I buy domain names all the time because that's like, <laughs> it's not that important. It's not like it makes the idea get become more real, but there's something about doing it that's sort of like fun and exciting and like, well, maybe, maybe I'll... Do something with this domain someday, uh, even though Google search has made domain names very of very little value. Um, so, I mean, in terms of keeping ideas fresh, writing every day, writing down ideas, you know, I think that's that's great. In terms of actually executing, I always say, and and I'm I'm one of these people that like I'm not able or willing, at least not yet to pursue something just sort of purely opportunistically in terms of, hey, this could make a lot of money, it's a great opportunity in the market, nobody's doing it, let me do it. I think that's an awesome thing and I almost wish I was better at that. I kind of have to have some kind of deep connection and passion for what I'm doing to put in any significant amount of time. Um, I'm kind of lazy about things that only are, where the reward is sort of just um, money if there's not something in it, that's more meaningful to sort of the core of who I am and and helping people become free and whatnot. And money can do that. I have nothing wrong with that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's dirty or yucky. I think it's awesome. I love money, but I just don't, I'm too lazy about things that aren't like really, really, uh, I'm not really passionate about. So I use the willing to fail test. And this can work in both cases, something you're passionate about or something that you're just like, look, I'm not passionate about this, but nobody's made this product, it's easy, I can make a bunch of money. Um, So the willing to fail test, if you have an idea and you're like, if I could prove that this would work, I would try it, I think it's probably not worth trying. You you, obviously you wanna get some information and if it's even a good idea at all, but if you're like, if I had proof that this would succeed, I'd do it. Well, yeah, I mean, well, a lot of people would do a lot of things if they knew it would succeed, but I think that's the way we approach it oftentimes. But the minute, and many ideas fit in that category, which I say means you shouldn't pursue them. But the minute you come across an idea where you're like, this idea is so compelling to me, I don't have proof, I don't know if it will fail or succeed, but I must find out. So so the, the two sides of the willing to fail test, the one is, is that kind. Like, I am willing to fail on this because I'm so passionate about it and so passionate about getting the answer and figuring it out. I'm just curious, will this work? Will this innovation, this idea work? I think it will. I need to get the answer. And darn it, if somebody else makes it work and I didn't do it, I'm gonna be kicking myself. I'm willing to fail in an effort to go after this. The other kind of willing to fail is that you're doing something so small and so risk, it doesn't even matter. So if you're like, hey, uh, you know, uh, someone cre- should create an app that does X, Y, and Z, that'd be really simple. Let me go to freelancer.com or someplace and and pay somebody you know two thousand dollars to build a prototype of this app and then I'm gonna go get ten people to test it and if they all love it uh, put in another five thousand or five hundred or fifty bucks whatever I mean there are ways for really cheap to to do some stuff and I'm willing to fail because I'm not gonna miss the few thousand dollars more than the uh, value that I'll have gained of trying this thing even if it doesn't work. Or I can do it for 50 bucks. I mean, there have been businesses created for a few hundred, whatever. Hey, I'm gonna go put up an online store. I'm gonna go to one of these t-shirt places. I have a cool idea for a t-shirt. I'm gonna go pay somebody you know, $5 on Fiverr to design it. I'm gonna go to a uh, you know, print on demand t-shirt place. I'm gonna buy a URL for 20 bucks. I'm gonna put it up there and spend 50 bucks on Facebook ads to a really targeted demographic of people who love, you know, the Green Lantern and peanuts. And I have my Green Lantern eats peanuts t-shirt, whatever, right? Like you come up Uh with something and and if it's so cheap and it takes you that, then you're willing to fail because you don't lose anything. That's another good sign, just go for it. Like if it's that small, just do it. There's absolutely no reason you shouldn't just do it. Um, So that's my test to get from entrepreneur to entrepreneur. And the more you get into that action bias, Uh, either on things that are so small and low risk that you're willing to fail or things you're so passionate about on the other extreme that you're willing to fail because you need the answer. So it's kind of like if you are, are absolutely in love with the idea, um, and it's like speaks to who you are or the idea is so simple and inexpensive to try. Both of those are good things that you're willing to fail on. TK, do you have any thoughts on how to go from entrepreneur to entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, you know, to follow up on what you were saying about the importance of being interested in what you're doing, what, what, one one piece of advice I always give to people when it comes to studying, because I have a lot of people ask me, should I study things that people tell me, you know, are important to learn, or should I, should I study the stuff that you know that I find to be fascinating? And and you know, one of my pieces of advice is if if you're bored when you're learning it, you're going to be boring when you apply it. If you're uninteresting when you study it. If you're uninterested when you're studying it, you're going to be uninteresting when you you know when you talk about it you know so if you want to be you know the whole idea is if you want to be interesting you got to be interested and i think being interesting is more than just oh this is a fun person to talk to it's this is a person who makes unique connections this is a person who goes above and beyond what they feel morally obligated to do this is a person that's willing to you know to work late on this this is a person who sometimes will lose sleep over this this is a person who will draw inspiration from this space within themselves that goes beyond duty. So I, I think being interested, being interested in what you're doing, is absolutely critical, and not just thinking in terms of what will work. A lot of people who get stuck in that entrepreneur phrase, entrepreneur wantre, phase, it's because they're they're always checking to see what the safest idea is or what the safest approach is. Also, interestingly, so I, I googled this term, and it says here uh, the definition of entrepreneur is someone who is gonna start a business someone who will find the right idea someday, someone who wants to act like an entrepreneur, someone who thinks about starting a business all the time. And I I, I think this this is the product of the school mindset which encourages us to take this generalist approach to thinking. Where in order to be successful or in order to be something, you got to learn or master everything there is to learn about this subject. So you see this mindset, for instance, when you're in the, the aisle at the grocery store and you see a magazine that says, you know, what every man needs to know about women. Now, that's generalist thinking, because if you talk to a guy that's actually married, you'll find out very quickly that his wife is not a reward for him understanding everything there is to know about women or for knowing what women want. He just succeeded with with being with one person and with knowing what one person works. That's the difference between generalist thinking and specific thinking. (laughs) My
0: my friend Jeremy McClellan, the comedian who's been on the show a couple of times, he he has a a bit where he says, you know, I was never really good with women, but then I got good at women. Well, not really. I got good at one woman, and she married me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. You know, if you're married, that's not the reward for you being an expert on on women or men. It's just you, you were lucky enough to find someone that's willing to put up with you. And, and we do the same thing to business, like the things you need to know to succeed at business. But
0: people that are actually successful at business, they were successful at one thing. I'm going right? to write a book that's like – seven keys to being highly successful at this very specific business that I launched that can never be replicated. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Hey, so, um, one one other, oh, are you still finishing that thought? No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> the way I phrased it, it's like. Right, 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 right. right. What are you supposed to I, say? Do uh, yeah. I still need to allow you to drone on <laughs> a drone on for several minutes? Or? Do you require four <laughs> syllables to make your point? Um, The, the only other thing, Matt, on this question, uh, where you said, what techniques have you used to test the waters and get a feel for the current market? That's kind of a, a a tension that you want to be, I think careful about too, because that's where a lot of people get stuck in the entrepreneurship is testing the market and trying to figure out, is there a demand? Will people like it? And I think that it's really, really hard. I mean, as, as a big fan of uh, economics, um, I always favor revealed preference over stated preference and you know what people do when there's money on the line and trade offs involved is way more valuable than what they tell you. So if you ask a hundred people, do you think this would be a cool product? Would you use it? If they know you, they'll probably all say yes. If they don't know you, it's really hard. Like it could be the mood they're in. They could be annoyed. it be like, I don't know. No, why are you asking me this? Get out of the way. You're not going to get very much value. You're not going to get enough to know, yes, this will work or no, this won't work. Uh, so if you can find, something that reveals actions people take um, and resources they expend on a particular thing that's more useful Um, but oftentimes if you're creating something new there isn't any really revealed preference like nobody's bought it before because it hasn't existed or there's you know no obvious alternative that you see them buying so i think often the best way to test the waters is to just launch something you know get that minimum viable product get something out there that you're actually asking someone to give up something for and get the feedback uh, in that way. And I think I'm going to give you a test that am going to give you a little challenge, Matt. Um, I have not done this challenge myself. I usually like to have done them. I've, I've done something similar. Well, I'm trying to think I, I probably maybe did one month, but not formally. So I'm going to tell you for a month, see if you can launch three micro biz or I'm sorry, four micro businesses, one per week, like actually create it and put it up, make it live so that you actually could make money. Now there's several easy ways. You can go to teachable.com and create a course and post it in like a couple hours and put a $5, $10, $500 charge on there. Uh, you know, post about it on Facebook. See if anyone wants to, uh, take your course. Maybe no one will, maybe they won't, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. You can do t-shirts. Like I said, something super easy. I mean, anything I say, just try it just to get yourself over the feeling of like, the actual launch, it feels so real, it's so much different than the idea phase and to break that wall down and, and to remind yourself that the idea phase and the implementation phase are congruent and they're happening simultaneously, they're not two separate phases. It's not like, well, it's just an idea form now, then it will become real. Like break that barrier and I think that will help a lot. So just make yourself, even if they're dumb, embarrassing businesses, even if you don't make any money, just launch one per week for a month something where someone actually could pay you money for uh, something that you put, you know, that that you're putting out there. And that will sort of help you get over that fear a little bit and help break down that dichotomy. Um, TK, I accused you of using too many syllables and then I did the same thing. We've got another question Uh, (laughs) from Matt. Do you you have a, a, do you have another really short thought on the previous question or should we move on? No,
1: no, <laughs> no. We're good, Matt. Move on.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. So, oh, I'll let you go first on this one. So, so Matt has, um, Matt has another question. I love your mantra: "Stop doing what you hate." Thank you, Matt. Uh, However, I think a lot of ambitious people have trouble quitting things. How do you recommend people build comfort quitting? And then he has a separate question how do you work on sustainably um, replacing yourself, whether you're quitting a job or moving up the ladder? How about you answer the first question, I'll answer the second. So, uh, people have trouble quitting things, how do you recommend people build comfort quitting?
1: I think this goes back to a video that you put out last week, where you talked about not allowing past versions of yourself to hold you hostage to to outdated dreams you know I, I think you have to develop an appreciation for the fact that you are an evolving being and as such your dreams will change your preferences will change your priorities will change and so forth and the worst thing you can do is stick to something that you committed to in the past that no longer serves you that no longer reflects your priorities For no other reason than that, well, I got to finish what I started, you know, the, the old sunk cost fallacy. So it's give yourself permission to change and evolve. And, you know, unless there's some sort of legal obligation to finish something out and, you know, put in 30 more days before you are free to quit something, walk away from it. If it's not serving you, just give yourself permission to change and realize that it's not a sellout. When you give up something that that isn't working for you, the people that you love, and isn't serving your whatever your purpose is, so always just stay in touch with your why. I mean that, that would that would probably be my my first piece of advice on on quitting things.
0: Hey, and to get better at quitting, to build comfort quitting, uh, just try quitting some stuff really small. Um, think of something that you do regularly that you just really don't like. I mean, it can be something as small as I hate mowing my lawn. I'm just gonna stop doing it and pay somebody forty bucks to do it. Um, Or, you know, uh, I have this weekly phone call with somebody and I don't enjoy it. I'm just gonna tell them I'm not gonna do it anymore. Or, (laughs) you know, like pick small things to start with and just get comfortable sort of taking your power back. Um, I said I'd let you answer that one and then I jumped in with the last word. That's the kind of jerk that I am. Uh, (laughs) How how do you work on sustainably replacing yourself whether you're quitting a job or moving up the ladder? There's two answers to that. The first one, because it depends on how you're asking it. The first one is, Don't ever let that be a reason to keep you from quitting something that you don't enjoy. Don't let that guilt and that feeling that, but if I quit, it will leave this person in a bad situation. I mean, unless you've made some sort of commitment or promise to them that you'd be breaking. Um, and you just, you know, know that's not who you are. It's not your core person to, to break a commitment like that. But if, if you're doing something that you hate, you know, I've had a lot of jobs that like I didn't love, I was a grocery bagger and I was the best grocery bagger in the store, which was a very low bar. All all you had to do was not steal products and you were the best uh, in the store. And, um, you know, when I quit, they were like bummed and they didn't want me to, and it left them, you know, in a lurch. I mean, I gave them my two weeks, but like it's hard to find entry level talent and whatnot. I mean, in some cases you just can't stress about it. Cause if you start being like, well I've gotta be able to replace myself before I quit as a prerequisite for me being happy, I have to make sure everyone else is happy. That's something you can never do. It's an impossible thing to accomplish. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. But in the positive sense, I have always tried to make it a point to make myself as replaceable as possible as quickly as possible in everything I do. And the way that I've gone about doing this is trying to understand the systems and processes in place uh, that are sort of at the core of what it is I'm accomplishing. Understand those and try to break them down in ways that I I could hand off and then actually do it. So I like to find people just a little before they're ready because this is how I had all the best opportunities in my life. Someone gave me an opportunity before I was really qualified or ready for it and let me go a little bit beyond what I was really capable of at the time and, and push me to get there. So I find somebody who's not quite ready yet and I hand off some components. So I sort of get down to the, what is the basis of my job? What are all the different components? And then I chunk off those components and say, I want to find somebody who's not quite ready to do this yet and give it to them and have them do it, whether as an intern or you know a volunteer or whatever, and start to sort of see what it's like when I'm not doing it. And you have to have a very high tolerance for imperfection. Uh, if you wanna be able to be replaceable and, and you wanna build things that can go on without you, you've got to be willing, because the only way, many people are going to mm-hmm. do things better than you eventually, but when they start, they're gonna do it worse than you. I mean, the founder of every company, if it's just if it's founded by one person or a few people, They do everything in the company better than everybody that they hire for the first couple hires, like every aspect, you know, typically, I mean, maybe, you know, if you don't do any website stuff, you hire a web guy. That's not true, but often it's the case that, so you have to watch someone do something in a way that's not as good as you could do it, but your time is more valuable and you want to make yourself replaceable and you want to give them the chance to grow into it. Now, sometimes people aren't capable, but um, so I I have a very high tolerance for imperfection and I have a very I try to hold on loosely to everything. I try to have an abundance mindset that says if I'm not needed for a task that doesn't reduce my value, that increases my value because I can now there's a greater number of things I can think about. I don't ever want to be territorial and feel like I need to be doing stuff as soon as possible, as early as possible in any job, in any role hold on to things loosely do them to the best of my ability but always look for ways that i can make them shareable and doable with anyone else and if that makes people be like well we don't even need this guy so be it if i'm actually not needed and actually not creating value it's time for me to move on anyway tk any thoughts on how to sustainably replace yourself if you're gonna quit a a job or something
1: yeah one analogy i like to use to illustrate one of the points you made is the analogy of buying a, a smartphone for the first time You're buying a tool that's going to make your life more convenient. However, for the first couple of days, or perhaps even week, when you own that phone, it makes your life more inconvenient because you have to learn how to send text messages. You got to learn how to use this thing, learn how to make phone calls, and it takes a frustrating amount of time. So, however, once you stick with it and get through that dip, it actually turns out to make your life easier. And I think the point there is that all forms of progress begin with some form of regress. You kind of got to slow down and go faster. You kind of got to go backwards a little bit in order to go forward. And I think that's the number one thing, the inability to deal with that, that makes it difficult for people to replace themselves. You have to develop that tolerance for the temporary regress that comes from having to endure a learning curve of showing someone how to do it. But if you stick with it, they'll eventually improve your efficiency just like the smartphone did. But it's gonna be frustrating at first, so just go into it mentally prepared for that. Hmm. All right, Matt, we gotta we got let you go and move on to some other questions, man. We got we got a lot of people coming in on Facebook. Hey, and uh,
0: what, you're just taking control of my show now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I was yeah. like, what's
0: happening here? I'm supposed to be the one that cuts you off because I want to make it look like I'm efficient. And uh, <laughs> come on, I'm trying to, Jeez. Okay, uh, yes, yes, we have to move on. That's like when we're on the phone with me and TK, we'll talk and it'll be like, wh- whichever one of us says, Hey man, I have stuff to do. I have to go. The other one always feels like they lost. So you have to say, Oh, I'm busy too. I was just leaving right now. I don't even, I'm done. I've, I got so many things going. I, I got to go too. It, it's you never want to be the one that has less going on. Um, all fun and games. Okay. We got a ton of great questions on Facebook. Uh, TK, you want to read the first one or do you, yeah, want, me to, you want me to read the questions? How do you, how you do you to the- roll? Well, I might be the better narrator,
1: so we'll read one from uh, Thomas Bogle. All
0: right, we'll let let you read one, and then we'll let me read one, and then we'll see what people think in terms of, you know, whose question reading skills are better.
1: All right, so I'm going to do voices with mine. Compare the psychological impact of pursuing an entrepreneurial venture versus the psychological effect of having a vision and not pursuing it. That's how Thomas Bogle sounds to me.
0: (laughs) And he's got a link to an article the psychological price of entrepreneurship from inc.com. Uh, I haven't read the article TK, but, uh, I guess I would just say it, I guess it depends on what you mean by entrepreneurial venture. So if it's the kind of thing we were talking about before where it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're doing something small opportunistically like that you're not entirely, it's not your life passion really invested in it. Um, I don't think there's that much psychological impact of either pursuing it or not pursuing it. Uh, it'll eat up some time and some, you know, a little bit of money and stress, whatever. If you don't do it, you probably won't kill you. But if we're talking about launching something that like your is your identity, this is who you are, you're, you're gonna identify this, this is your venture, at least for the time being, that you're throwing yourself fully behind. I never, in talking about entrepreneurship and how great it is, I never want to downplay it is really hard and it is very psychologically hard. I mean, it can really, really mess with you. Um, and there are times where, you know, you have to wonder if it's worth it. So how do you balance that between not having tried it at all? I guess I would just always say, uh, it's always worse to not have tried it if it's something you really care about, because then you, you'll never know. Like there, there are windows of time where if you go too long without trying it, you might not be able to at all. Whereas if you do try it, if it's so bad, you can quit and pull out at any time. And the opposite is not always true. That's how I phrase it. TK. I know your startup that you were working with a few years before, you know, you, you helped me get build up praxis and all that stuff. Um, was a really hard thing with a lot of ups and downs, really exciting moments where you were about to get investment and then, you know, things would go down. And then what was the psychological price of that? And would you say, how would that compare to if you had not pursued that startup?
1: Yeah. So, you know, while you're in it, I think the psychological price could be very high because you don't have the security or the illusion of security that comes from not being at the top of a company. You know, when you just show up to your job, then From your point of view, all you have to do is put in the time or the effort you agreed to, and someone else is going to take care of paying you. So, you know, if you work at Target, for instance, and no one comes into the store that day, you're not really worried about it because you agreed to an hourly wage, and you're going to get paid that whether it's a busy day or not. You know, Um, or, or you might even be a little frustrated if it's really crowded that day because you don't get paid more for being really, really busy. So. You just kind of think about, here's what I need to do, and here's what I'm going to get, whether it's busy or not. But when you're the person that has to pay other people, then you might be you know, worried or freaked out when there's no one in the store that day because you understand that your numbers are down. You're going to have to make up for that. So when you're taking an entrepreneurial approach to anything and you have to think not just about showing up and, and doing work, but you also have to think about raising the money Paying the people that work for you, making sure your 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 numbers are steady, it it, it tends to give rise to a, a greater greater possibility for anxiety, um, you know, for just nervousness and things like that. It can cost you a lot of sleep, and I it, think it's
0: it, important for entrepreneurs. It's lonely too. It's really really lonely because even if you can find other entrepreneurs or you've got a, a small team with you or whatever, you know, even if your spouse is, is very involved no one is doing No one has ever done exactly what it is that you're doing. And there are just times where I think that, that loneliness is very, very powerful. And you've got to have a a vision that you believe in so much that you're okay, sort of, sort of carrying it alone. And some of the things that you stress about are things that really don't make sense to stress about. So if you shared them with someone, they wouldn't really understand it either. And you're, you know you know that, but you can't necessarily overcome it. So um, it's tough, but I would never say, I would never say if you're burning with an idea, you should weigh the psychological costs and try to understand you know, exactly how it's gonna affect you before you go after it. I guess, again, if it's something you're willing to fail at, um, go for it. You're not gonna be able to know what succeeding or taking a really long time to fail at it are gonna look like ahead of time. Um, so trying to figure those out, cost-benefit analysis doesn't work for everything. You have to just kind of go where, where your energy, where your excitement is. Um, hey man, you, you know
1: what, let, let, let here it is. Let, 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 me just, let me just put this out here. Here's the final word on this question, all right? The most important psychological effect of going an entrepreneurial route. I mean, we can talk about the sleepless nights, the loneliness, all these different things, but at the end of the day, as you stated earlier, you cannot learn how to cope with failure, or how to conquer it, how to process these emotions, unless you actually go through them. So when you adopt that entrepreneurial path, even if you get your butt kicked, even if you lose a lot of sleep, even if you're a nervous wreck the entire time, the experience of going through that and seeing how possible it is for you to survive makes you a superior version of yourself. So I think even if it doesn't feel good in the middle of it, you always come out stronger, more courageous, wiser, better sense of humor, all of those things if you go through it. So I'm always for the entrepreneurial path. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, it's often lonely. But on the other side of that is something that is outright better in every way than to just being someone who has a vision but never gives themselves a chance to find out if they can realize it and what they're capable of becoming if they pursue it.
0: All right, we're gonna go rapid fire for the next several questions and we're gonna go one at a time. So I'll answer one and then you and then me and then you, how about that?
1: Sounds good, and, and man. Then, and
0: then if one of us wants to you know, come in and chime in on one of them uh, afterwards, if we have time, we'll do that. All right. So I'm going to take this one. Ben Sperry. Why do you severely overrate Kobe Bryant and severely underrate LeBron James? Or maybe another way to ask, why is sports fandom possibly even more irrational than political fandom uh, and sometimes almost as divisive or violent? I think the answer to the second question is tribalism, though the state is still worse than internet forums or even stadiums in the scale of violence and threats. Um, There's a lot wrapped in there, so let me just break it down real fast. Uh, I love greatness, and I love a story, a narrative of greatness, of becoming and maintaining greatness, and greatness is not just about data and stats that can be measured. Um, Those measurable outcomes play a part, but it's about a mindset, a process. It's something I can look at and say, wow, that is greatness right there. Kobe Bryant's got that. I mean, there's just something about the guy that's relentlessness, you know, his mental toughness, despite his ability to overcome haters and obstacles. He's never trying to be what people want him to be. And many people hate him for that. Now you can like or not like his style of play, but his ability to be who he wants to be, regardless of what everyone else is doing and relentlessly obsessively focus on it is deeply inspiring to me. That's greatness. LeBron James, I have tried so many times to like the guy. I really want to because he's so popular and for a while there, he, like the NBA was really dull and boring uh, until probably the last three or four years for a good stretch and you know, all the media, all they did constantly was talk about LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. So every time I try, but I can't, I can't like him. Every time I try, I, I even have convinced myself mentally why I should like him and be like, okay, now I'm a fan. And then I watch him play or I watch him at a press conference and I don't get that sense of greatness at all. It's not pretty basketball. It doesn't feel like he's taking ownership. I feel like he doesn't know what his own identity is. I just get this weird feeling like he doesn't like himself enough for me to like him. And I know that's totally subjective and unfair. LeBron James, if you're listening, come on the show. We'll talk about it. Um, I just I, I haven't been able to embrace him. I can't, I can't be a fan of him. And I, and I feel like it's gotten... It, it exacerbates it in the fact that uh, new statistics and new data is invented all the time to to make him sound. It'd be like LeBron James just broke the record for first guy on a Tuesday to make a shot while standing only on his left foot from <laughs> you know eight feet since Michael Jordan did it. You know they're always trying to tie it to Michael. Jordan. And it's like, man, I watch Jordan. I watch him in big moments. I watch him play. But that was greatness. I watch Kobe. There is greatness there. I don't get that in any sense with LeBron. I'm sorry. Is sports fandom possibly more irrational than political fandom? Uh, we got to be careful how we define irrational. Um, if you mean, you know, doing things that are against your own self-interest. Um, I think it's kind of an a incorrect way to use the term and, and to refer to sports fandom. I would say I knowingly indulge in biased and sort of silly behavior when I enter the world of sports. Like when I talk about sports on social media, I'm trolling 90% of the time. I can't hold myself back. I am the worst trash talker ever. We were just watching uh, the Thunder and the Spurs play last night. And uh, my, my colleague Cameron Sorsby is a big Spurs fan. And I am just a total jerk to watch sports games with. I mean, I just, I just talk trash. I can't, I can't contain myself. That's the area of my life where I, I let it out. And that's kind of the fun of it. Um, and I don't think it's anything like politics because the stakes, there's no stakes. The stakes are so low. People are not, um, you know, dying over this, uh, or, or insulting even, even internet forums, I would say are worse. Nobody's insulting somebody's core being, you know, when I'm making fun of, of Cameron's team losing, I'm not, I'm not accusing Cameron of hating women and children and freedom and puppies, you know, (laughs) like, uh, like debates on the internet often do. So, um. I love it. I love sports. I think it's a big dramatic narrative. Uh, I think TK has helped me see that the NBA is more enjoyable when you view it through the lens of the WWE as these big characters uh, and this big soap opera-esque you know, thing around it. And I, I think that makes it really fun, all the storylines, all the ups and downs. Um, so anyway, uh, there's my answer to that. TK, you want the next question?
1: Sure, man. Uh, the map is not the territory. Discuss. All right. Not exactly a question, but a a topic that we can riff on for a little bit. So what what, I mean, the the obvious meaning of this is that there is a distinction between the concepts we use to think about reality, the words we use to describe reality and reality itself. You know, I I think George Lakoff in Metaphors We Live By uh, talks about this very well when he when when he when he when he says that the distinction between the metaphorical and the literal is itself often metaphorical. Many times we think ourselves to be talking literally when we're really speaking non-literally. So for instance, one example of this he uses is the argument as war metaphor. Whenever we speak about arguments with other people, we tend to use the language of warfare, the language of being in a battle. He shot down my position. He defended his position. I held my ground. He attacked everything that I had to say. She refuted all of my points. I came out with both guns blazing. You know, and an argument is not literally a war. It doesn't have to be experienced as a war. But the way that we often think about it, the way that we often talk about it is using the language of warfare. One of the things that Lakoff says is that the, the metaphors we use to think about and talk about something actually shape and structure the experience itself. So we actually experience arguments as a form of war, which is why they often show up as this sort of heated, contentious, uncomfortable thing. But that's not because that's what it is. It's because that's the map that we use to navigate it. And the idea is if you change the map. You don't necessarily change the territory, but you change the way in which you can navigate the territory. And so I think this is actually a very promising idea, a very liberating idea, because so much of what we take to be reality really consists of of, of maps that we use to navigate reality. I mean, Carl Jung talked about how when our assumptions are not recognized as such, they don't show up as ideas. They show up as a reality, and we take it to be the way it is. And so many times when we find ourselves feeling frustrated, feeling like we're limited, feeling like something is against us, we think this is the way it is, and this is the only way it can be. And in reality, much of that is the product of the map that we're using to navigate that situation. And you change that. You can change how you experience the situation. So, you know, I I, I live by this notion that the map is not the territory and i always try to step back from my experience and say all right in what way is my map limiting me from experiencing the full range of possibilities that exist in this territory but we can we can discuss this idea for a uh, we can discuss this idea for an entire episode yeah well, i'll, that's I'll, I'll actually, leave it at there for a minute
0: jonathan uh, it's funny that you asked that cuz that's that's one of the topics on the the master list of uh, ideas. So we'll probably get to that another time. All right, the next one is two and one. So I'll take the first one and TK, you take the second one. Liz Wolf uh, says, I'm interested in your thoughts on graduate school and the value of education post-college or post-praxis. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the individual specific paths. For some paths, like med school, it makes more sense, but I'm interested in whether you have a different take on Ecuador and then the second question is how do you maintain a good organizational culture with a remote office I'll let TK take the second one so on grad school um, I would say the analysis is much the same I mean it's like anything uh, any good that you're gonna buy that's really expensive and time consuming and whatever um, you know do you need it Uh, well to know if you need it you need to know what you're trying to get with it If you don't know what you're trying to get I mean this is the worst thing so many people okay I graduated from undergrad uh, I don't know what to do next uh, I don't have a job. I guess I'll go to grad school because that will open more doors. That's a that's a horrible decision-making process. That's like buying a cement truck and saying, well, I don't know what to do with this thing now. Uh, I spent 30, you know, whatever, I don't know what a cement truck cost, 100 grand. I don't know how to make money with it or use it. I guess I should buy a bulldozer next, you know? Um, no, I mean, it's absurd. I, so I would say it's the same kind of analysis you should use for college. If you have a very specific reason that you need it, that you need grad school and to do what you wanna do and you know there's no other way to do it, then go for it. Uh, Otherwise, I think it's silly and I think grad school is almost more dangerous in this regard. It's easier to fall into the prestige trap. Grad school, undergrad doesn't really have that much prestige anymore these days. Um, It has some. uh, It's more like you feel like a loser if you don't do it. If you do do it, you're just sort of normal. So it's like how to not be a loser. But if you want to be like cool and amazing and smart graduate degree, um, that prestige factor is so strong, it's really hard to objectively analyze whether or not you need it. Um, So I think grad school is even probably more wasteful than undergrad for anyone who doesn't absolutely need it, require it to do what they know they want to do. If you know you want to be a professor, you know you want to be a doctor or a lawyer um, and that's what is, you know, driving you, then you have to go do it. Cause you know, the law says you do whatever, go, go do it. If you don't know, or if you want to be something else, there's no like, Oh, it'll be good to have. Oh, it'll help me. No. I mean, that's, you're chasing prestige or you're delaying, getting to know who you really are. Uh, I would just say, don't do it. TK, how do, we re- how do we maintain a good organizational culture with a remote office?
1: Mm. Well, I, I, I think the more fundamental question is how do you build that, that organizational culture in the first place, right? Because you have to first build something before you worry about maintaining it. And I think the way you build it is by working with people that you actually trust and that you actually like. I mean, so much of, so many of the elements of organizational culture are in many ways a compensation for a lack of trust and respect. There's the the constant need to micromanage people because we just don't think they're competent enough. We just don't trust them. We just don't know if they can get the job done. And you have all of these sorts of things going on. And some people are just lonely and they're making everybody come to these meetings because they feel the need to uh, they need to feel important or or they need someone to talk to. So (laughs) I, I think the way you do this is you start by building a culture. Where you trust and respect the people that you that you work with from the beginning and you eliminate from the start a lot of the need, you know, to always see each other and, and be in touch with each other. But but beyond that, I, I think one of the reasons why it's important to work with people that you like and trust is because you'll naturally communicate about this idea with one another because you love the idea and you like each other. So everyone on the praxis team talks with each other several times a week about praxis because we're working on Praxis, because we love Praxis. We're crazy about this idea. So it's impossible for us to not stay in touch, for us to not want to talk with each other about different creative ideas and things like that. So I think that atmosphere of trust and that common passion we have makes us more inclined to communicate than the average organizational culture and it makes us less resentful because we're not doing it because it's mandatory
0: or because someone is forcing us to
1: have too many meetings and you know from a practical standpoint we make you use of tools like boxer and slack and you know we can eliminate real-time constraints and be able to stay in touch with each other without you know requiring everybody to meet at the same time for a meeting every several weeks but that's all i got to say on it man you have anything to add
0: on that Nope, I wanna to try to move uh, move fast. I mean, I I always have some thoughts to add on stuff, but I wanna go for quantity now and try to f- hammer through the rest of these that are up here. You game? Yeah, go for it. Carl yeah, right. uh, Oberg uh, posts an article from uh, Jacobin Magazine. I've never actually known the right way to pronounce that. Jacobin, Jacobin, I think it's Jacobin, but it's a French word, so I don't know. Um, the entrepreneurship racket is the article. Now I clicked and I scanned it, and if I'm, um, I could be wrong, but the main thesis seems to be entrepreneurship is this big craze, and it's destroying universities. It's corporatizing universities, but because you have all these companies sponsoring hackathons and sponsoring entrepreneurship majors, and basically trying to get all these college students to live the entrepreneur lifestyle of staying up, you know, nights on end and building things for these corporate overlords is kind of the tone of the article as far as I understood it. I mean, my thoughts on this are sort of like, so what? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, corporatization of American universities. Okay. I mean, I guess it could be problematic in because taxpayers are forced to subsidize universities in many different ways, directly through state tax dollars and federal grants and federally subsidized student loans. So taxpayers are paying for these places and you know, businesses are coming in and saying, hey, you have all, this, all these people working on projects, maybe they could work on some projects for us. Um, you know, the businesses usually pay them to do that. So I mean, I guess you could be upset and say, well, that's subsidizing those businesses. Well, the answer is not to try to stop entrepreneurship or commerce. It's to stop giving taxpayer dollars to universities. Um, but the, the other side of it though, the trend that I love is it's breaking down the wall between work, play and study. And it's, you're a student at a university. What are you supposed to do? Just study on this university schedule until four years, six years later, all of a sudden you emerge and transition seamlessly into a completely different world. This idea that study and exploration are, part of the commercial process just like I was telling Matt about try launching these micro businesses break down that dichotomy between the idea phase and the action phase you know build an app for a real company that's actually trying to use it right now and use that process as a way to learn how to build an app for a real company instead of taking a class about theoretically what it would be like to build create value for the marketplace do it right now so destroying those walls breaking that down to the extent that that's happening I love it I think it's kind of if it is a racket, it's a racket for, uh, I think the students paying all this money to get accredited, you know, um, credit hours and stuff is a waste when they could just be working directly for those companies. You know, they could just be doing hackathons and projects without paying. I mean, it's, it's, it's often the case that in many places you go and intern for a company and you're paying tuition in order to intern to get credit for the internship, which is just absurd. I mean, that's that's where I think people are getting squeezed. So skip all that, uh, come to Praxis, we'll put you with companies right now and uh, let you jump in. And yeah, the entrepreneurship craze, uh, I can't think of a better thing to have a craze about, you know, creating value in innovative ways. That's awesome. doesn't mean everyone's gonna make smart decisions, but um, I think it's great. I think more people should engage in it sooner. Uh, next question for you, TK, it simply says drugs. From Gabe Mitchell.
1: All right, so I'll just give, this could be another episode as well. I'll just give a a, a brief minute riff on this. I, I think one of the most interesting things about drugs right now is how the discussion on drugs has been, for the most part, in the history of this country, dominated by politics and fear, and we're starting to see, see a paradigm shift. Where the conversation is now being taken over by science and spirituality, where we're starting to think seriously, for arguably the first time in a really long time, about the therapeutic and medicinal value of drugs that, for the most part, have been demonized. So, for instance, you know, if you take a look at what what distinguishes a drug from a non-drug, what gets what gets to be called a drug and what isn't called a drug, has been for the most part political and and inconsistent with the science. So, for instance refined sugar is just considered to be a regular part of the american diet or you can go to any gas station in the world or you know any store in the world and just get snacks with no restrictions placed upon you to eat refined sugar even though we know this can be the cause of a great number of health problems including you know the obesity epidemic in our country coffee doesn't get to be considered a drug even though by Ancient shamanistic cultures, it was actually used to produce ecstatic states, that it was seen to be exactly a drug. Or you take, for instance, the notion that a Schedule One drug is considered to be something that is addictive, it has no medicinal value, and that that's an accurate description of things that are not considered to be a drug, uh, you know, fast food. Um, but you know, if you take drugs like uh, psychoactive substances like iboga or salvia divinorum, they are Schedule One drugs in many places, and yet. They actually have anti-addictive properties and can be used to help people that are addicted to other kinds of drugs like heroin, or cocaine. They can help help those people sort of get off of those states. And in addition to that, they have other therapeutic um, benefits. So we're starting to see this change where we're having interesting discussions about these drugs. People like Ben some people like Carl Hart are, are, are pointing us back to the science, and I think... Over the course of the next 50 years, we're going to see uh, psychoactive substances and a lot of other things that are considered to be drugs. We're going to see them play a greater role, not only in in therapy but also in medicine. And I think getting this right and, and reexamining our assumptions about what constitutes the drugs and what drugs should and should not be endorsed. I think it's critical for the evolution of our species and I think it's an exciting time to talk about it.
0: I love that, that single word drugs. I always imagine like a teacher or a parent with a dare to keep kids off of drugs t-shirt who is giving a kid Ritalin. (laughs) Dare to keep kids off drugs, now take this Ritalin and shut up. Okay, Ken Braun, (laughs) when I hook my driver five times in a row thinking I've shot the ball out of bounds but then find all five shots within a few feet of each other and still in play, do I attempt to correct the swing or just learn to play the hook? That's actually a a deeper philosophical question that applies to many things. If I'm doing something knowingly the wrong way but it's working for me, do I just roll with it or try to fix it? Uh, I can't type properly. I type with two fingers. Um, but my speed and accuracy is above average and it's never caused me a problem. So I've just never learned to type. So I've embraced, uh, embraced the hook, I guess, in that example. Um, and I'm not a professional typist. I don't type enough to where I would, I don't know, feel like I need to correct it. It never seems like a problem, but, but Ken, I would say this, how, how often, how often you play golf? If you plan on playing golf every week, uh, for the next few years or whatever, then it's probably worth it to try to correct it. But if you only play like me once every year or something, you just embrace that and play the hook because you're gonna get worse when you're trying to fix it. Uh, I don't know anything about golf really, but um, that seems to be true in in these types of cases. You're gonna get worse while you're trying to get better. So if you only play once a year, it's not worth it to to be worse for those few times. Uh, Andrew Stover asks, TK, how do you market alt college programs to a market that's been strongly influenced towards institutional learning? In other words, where are the soft edges that non-accredited, non-degree giving programs will start nibbling away, and when do they start nibbling into really protected industries like medicine or engineering? That is a great question.
1: So I'm not sure if you do market to people that have a strong leaning towards institutional learning, because. If you look at the basis for how people in that demographic make their decisions, they base it on what what makes them fit in, what's easy, what's obvious, what everyone else is doing, uh, and and what has the least social price that comes along with it, what's perceived to be safe, and so forth. I think you market it to the people that are already frustrated with the existing system, that already see the cracks in the wall, that are already looking for something different, and you use that demographic, that remnant, that tribe – To build momentum and as you build momentum, there's that second wave of people who do things because everyone else is doing them or because that's the thing to do and that's ultimately how the revolution gets started. The revolution is when the masses react to the remnant. So I think you market to the remnant not to the masses and i I think every revolution happens this way it's sort of like apple you don't market to everyone you market to those people that are willing to sleep outside of the apple store because those people will be your evangelists they will carry the message and they are the ones who are ready to see it if you're trying to market to the masses in the beginning you'll just spend a lot of energy getting into arguments with people that don't see it i mean facebook isn't what it is because it started off appealing to everyone's grandma but now everyone's grandma is on it Why, why is that
0: I love the question about where will they start nibbling away at the edges? Um, I mean, I would say you see already uh, coding schools, you know, computer science degrees are one of the first to, to, I would say already have succumbed. If you want to be a programmer, go to a coding school, it's much better, uh, faster, cheaper, more effective. Um, so what's next, you know, for us, we're really focused on non-technical roles at startups and growing small businesses. Things like sales, business development, marketing, kind of utility player, right-hand man to a founder, uh, those kind of non-technical, so non-programmer types. Um, people who are interested in that kind of stuff. I mean, sales and marketing especially. There's just no reason to go get a degree in that stuff. You don't learn anything relevant to the job and people um, can are excited to, you know, with, with some basic uh, training, bring you on and, and have you learn. So, I mean, I think, those are some things um, I hope to see. Medicine and engineering—it's uh, they will. It will happen. It absolutely will. I, I hope it happens soon, and I'm excited to see in what ways it happens. Gabriel Mitchell asks, "Egoism? Uh, yes, I love it." Uh, Daniel Schmutter. Oh, I got to take this one too. Sorry. Cause it's specifically about, yes, I have a question. <laughs> Why do you use the objective case me when the subjective case I is called for, uh, in the question I said, me and TK are doing a podcast to ask us any questions. Daniel, great question. I'm rebelling against my mom. I think it's a deep psychological, uh, you know, some sort of subconscious rebellion. When I was growing up, my mom would constantly correct me when I would say me versus I in the wrong context. And then I'd start to say I all the time. And sometimes me was called for and she'd correct me. And I hated being corrected and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So I think I have, I have uh, latched on to improper grammar as a form of rebellion against my mother. That's all I can come up with, Daniel. I don't know. Uh, sometimes I get it wrong. Here you go, TK, Matt Hartle. If you could take a major company—Walmart, Amazon, Apple—burn it all down and rebuild it, what would be your plan? What would you change about it? What would stay the same? Any, any major company, or only the three listed as an example? I think any. I mean, he said examples, so that means you know, these are examples, not the only ones.
1: I I would combine. I would tear down the NBA, rebuild it with the help of Vince McMahon, and infuse the drama of WWE wrestling and I would make it more entertaining. So when you have that moment, for instance, a few days ago where Steph Curry is holding up the MVP award, I would have LeBron James come running out into the stadium and clothesline him. And then I I would have everyone pull the players away and it would be this really dramatic moment. And you could see the two guys wanting to fight each other, and the announcer would say, I guess we're going to have to wait until the NBA
0: finals (laughs)
1: to see what happens here. You know, so I I would just make it far more entertaining and dramatic. I I would bring, uh, what's the guy, uh, Sterling back. I would give him an NBA team just so everybody could be really angry and make him my villain. I do all kinds of stuff like
0: that. (laughs) Oh, man. Can't wait till that happens. All right, Michael Hogan. Chef, entrepreneur, what's the next fad profession that will over-attract people that already exists in the market? Um, I don't know that I fully accept the premise. Uh, Are chef and entrepreneur fad professions that have over-attracted people? I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean. Way more people than ever have attempted, you know, have have started to explore cooking or becoming a chef um, either for pay or for a hobby, or they started for pay but realized it wasn't gonna work so they decided to do it for a hobby. I don't know if that's a fad profession or if that's just a reflection of increased disposable income, increased wealth, and the ability to pursue sort of higher order um, interests, you know, sort of think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, things that help you self-actualize, you know, if you've always been interested in food, it's just now you're able to do it more than you ever were before. So more people are going after it. I don't, I don't think it's a case of uh, sort of people analyzing the marketplace and saying, chef, there's a gap between how much it costs to become one and how much you make. I'm going to exploit that. Like, I think people, those are like passion, passion pursuits. People do them because they're really highly interested for the most part. It's not a calculating decision. So in that case, I don't know if you can have an over attraction of people. I mean, you know, there's only so many people that will make money doing it, but I don't know that that's why everyone went in. An entrepreneur is largely the same. I think that the designation is starting to broaden to the point that maybe entrepreneur, if all we mean is someone who earns their money not from a single company for their entire life for doing a single task, you know, maybe they're they're working for a few different country companies as a contractor or a freelancer. Maybe they've started a few businesses and you know sold them and starting another one. Maybe they, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. If you listen to the Beginner's Guide to Startup series on this podcast, um, we get into a lot of that, but um, so I guess I just don't know if I would call those fad professions. Like, I don't think entrepreneurship is a fad. I think it's the future. I think, uh, to, to quote the, the book title from Taylor Pearson, who's been on the show, The End of Jobs. I think the concept of jobs is a dinosaur and the concept of being an entrepreneur or being a value creator, um, not necessarily a startup founder, but broadly speaking, is the only way. Uh, so I wouldn't call it like an overhyped fed but is there some other what's the next big thing I don't know podcasting who knows <laughs> me, college professor let me um, yeah I don't know if the trends well, maybe they are if that's a if people more and more people are trying to get into it or not let me do a quick refresh and make sure that's the last of the the questions man we ended up going for a long time we got a lot of uh, a lot of questions I just posted this right before we started recording so what do you think was that was that fun? I feel like it got a little long-winded. We maybe tried to tackle too much. Are, are we recording now still? Yeah, yeah we're recording. <laughs> I just, oh, it was great. It was I, great, Isaac. <laughs> I, I want your real-time feedback for these future Fridays. We're, we're kind of playing around with it, with the format and everything. What do you think?
1: So I, I like this format, uh, and you know, of having questions. I, I think we got to dive in faster and and push ourselves to do the uh, the shotgun approach a little bit earlier on. I think we got off to a slow start by spending a little too much time on one or two questions. So yeah, uh, I, I like the latter the latter part more than the
0: form. The Praxis infomercial was too long, too. I'm gonna just blame you for that since I didn't <laughs> I didn't prepare you at all. I just asked you right on the spot. Um, yeah, I'm with you. But this this was a lot of fun, uh, and there's so many of these questions that you know I feel like you could spend a whole episode diving into. But um, hopefully, this was fun for you guys. I had a good time. And uh, TK, any any final thoughts you want to leave? Give give everybody one link or book to go read this weekend. What, what's one oh, piece of content to consume?
1: Well, since you since you brought it up, read Thunder Squeak, a book called Thunder Squeak by TMTS.
0: All right. And my recommendation is going to be read Breaking Smart. Just Google Breaking Smart. Um, It's a web series, a series of essays, and it is phenomenal. All right, man. Until next Friday. Uh, This was fun. Have a great one.
1: Cheers.